Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. This is a continuation, or the second shaft into the salt mine, namely our session on salt. And this is rock salt on. 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 As I recall, in the New Testament, is there any laughter, Andrew? Not much. Kurt Vonnegut says that uh, Jesus makes one joke, which is a pun. Uh, on this rock, I will found my church, uh, which is a pun on on the word Peter that means rock. Not there much of bet. a joke, though, if you're going to make one joke. But that joke, Sparrow, is the foundation of the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah. In a sense, the foundation of all of Christianity is based on a joke. <laughs> there is laughter in the New Testament. Laughter as jeering crowds laugh when they mm. mock people like criminals or, or Jesus. Mm. That's interesting. The Pharisees, I think, laugh or mm. scoff. It's more scoffing. Well, it maybe depends how it's translated. No doubt. I mean, people say, I read this, I think I read a biography of Kafka, Franz Kafka once, and it said the Kafka, you know, Kafka is known as one of the most depressing writers in history. And when he would read his stories to his friends, they would be doubled over in laughter. Uh, you know, it, so it's possible that Jesus was being very funny and it just doesn't... Uh, doesn't translate. Through. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't uh, communicate to us now. Certainly the life of Brian, you know, that, that I've been interested in. I'm writing this book about how much I hate the Beatles. And uh, one of the things I'm interested in is the Beatles... Uh, assault on Christianity, their kind of hostility to Christianity. I mean, they're these beloved figures, but they hate Christianity more or less. And uh, George Harrison produced the film, The Life of Brian, which is essentially the only satirical film ever made about Jesus. The line I remember from it, I read in the New York Times when the movie came out, it was in their review, they said, there, there's two guys that, that they're at the very edge of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the one of them says to the other, what did he just say? Blessed are the cheesemakers? And the other one says, it's a metaphor for all dairy workers. Yeah, the 
one thing I wanted to point out from my recent experience is last night I woke up at about 530. Hmm. Um, there was a kind of a, I'll be frank, you know, a discomfort bordering on pain in my abdomen on the left hand side of my abdomen between my rib cage and my hip you know sort of in that area that you can put your hand down in and you know that you Mm. feel a slight it's slightly indented there and so I woke up and I was like oh did I stretch weird did I move weird and then very quickly I realized oh my oh my (laughs) This pain is coming from inside of my body. It's coming from my inner body. It's it's there, and then it grew, and and I'm doubled over. I'm in serious pain. Mm-hmm. I'm rocking with like some real like feelings of I cannot move without pain, and unmoving, I am in pain, and this mm-hmm. inescapable. Um, I guess, you know, kind of suffering and you know, I'm sort of thinking, oh, is this the moment at which I go from being a healthy person to a sick person? You know, mm. is this the, you know, and then I, you know, got up and, um, you know, went into the bathroom and, and sought to, you know, poo poo and pee pee and you know, but I'm having a little bit of difficulty. I'm doubled over. I'm in a little bit of pain. I'm in a lot of pain, actually. And then Kim wakes up. And at this point, I'm becoming nauseous. And then I mm. I vomit once. Oh. And it's like, oh, I have vomited my body. It's working. It's going through some sort of fail safe. And then uh, continuing pain. And then I vomit a few more times. And then meanwhile, Kim's like on the coconut doing some research. And she's like, you know, I think you have a kidney stone. Oh, yeah. They're incredibly painful. Yeah, they're incredibly painful. And they're in part made of uh, none other than uh, sodium chloride. You're You're going through that right now? No. And then, you know, I vomited. You know, I did the finally did that sort of serial vomiting dry heaving by the way and uh and then i felt better (laughs) yeah and i went to sleep woke up you know three hours later four hours later and uh Mm. you know feel fine wow so you think it was a kidney stone you're not going to go to the doctor you know what i did i did uh i talked to the doctor through telemedicine. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, talk to some cat. And you said, oh, well, if you're feeling better, it's hard, a bit hard to diagnose, um, you know, even though I was fairly thorough in my description of what I'd gone through. He said, it's hard to tell. It could be a kidney stone, but, it, you know, if you're not feeling bad, just, you know, keep an eye on yourself and uh, see if it comes back or and we'll deal with it then. Hmm. It could have been I shot the kidney stone right out of my Peter. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I'm not gonna found a I'm not gonna found a church on what my experience. That's all I'm oh, gonna Peter, say. Peter, you mean uh well, I think a euphemism for the penis is Peter. Yeah, yeah I know, I get it. You're just using that same pun as Jesus. <laughs> The uh, one thing about salt and pepper is that, you know, they're kind of black and white. 
um, mm. you know, like the keys of a piano, but they also are a contemplation, you know, because I'm thinking about Little Sparrow. Before you were even a sparrow, before you transformed into what mm-hmm. you are, you know, they represent that kind of duality, you know, black and white, mm. um, a kind of Zoroastrian vision of the nature of creation or human affairs mm. or what have you. Yin and yang, which are black and white, this idea of two. I mean, I, it feels to me very arbitrary, the uh, salt and pepper shakers. I mean, salt, you really need pepper. I, um, you know, rarely, I don't think I ever add it to my food. Yeah. I cook with it, but I mean, it's yeah. not like, oh, I need a pepper shaker on my uh, uh, kitchen table in case my food is not peppery enough. But you put you put pepper into your soups when you're cooking. Yeah, I I uh, was very influenced by Trivial Pursuit, the uh, the game where the question has something like, "What is the king of all spices?" and the answer is pepper. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. Anyway, that's my memory of the game, and I never thought much about pepper. But when I started trying to seriously cook, trying to make things taste good, when my wife sort of rebelled against my cooking, maybe eight years ago. I, uh, you know, I started to lean on pepper because I think pepper is not a bad place to start with a, with a seasoning a meal. Uh-huh. I mean, within that kind of way of thinking, I guess we think of pepper as being peppy. Mm. And then do we think of salt as being more salt. dour, being kind of... Uh, Usually you would think of dark things as being more thonian and more ying. And then salt, you know, which is white and like daylight and like, you know, brightness, mm. you would think mm. of as being more yang. But their actual inner experience are, is maybe opposite. Well, salt is, is yang, yang. I mean, I believe my experience, my, my feeling is the most, uh, yin food in the world would be refined white sugar. And the oh. most yang food in the world would be pure salt. I mean, I'm sort of a macrobiotic, a modified macrobiotic. So I think about, I think about actually the yin and yang nature of food. And there's a lot of saltiness in, um, in traditional macrobiotic cooking. Because what you're aiming for, you want food that's right on the border, right in the middle between yin and yang. So the perfect food is brown rice. I don't know if I've said this already in five different podcasts. And and then seaweed, which is also a traditional Japanese food, is yang. So what's very yang is meat, but traditional macrobiotic diet doesn't have meat. So you want something that's young, like uh, seaweed, uh, miso, is uh, anything that's salty is, tends to be young. But you want it to be not too young, kind of towards the middle of young. Yeah. Not like a hamburger, which is like, you know, very, very young. I mean, I've had some unpleasant experiences where I've had a bowl of cereal and I put the milk in and then I'm reaching over for the sugar and shake <laughs> it out. And it turns out it was salt. You know? Yeah. 
Oh man, that is. Um... I think everyone's had that experience. I once went to this Indian restaurant, really cheap Indian restaurant that taxi drivers go to. So I went to this little uh, Indian restaurant. You know, I bought a meal for like you know five dollars, and then I took the salt and I started to pour the salt on it, and the lid came off the salt shaker, like the top of the salt shaker fell off and just like a pile of salt fell on my food. <laughs> wow. And I think like you can't say to them, hey, can I have some uh, a new portion here? So I just had to wipe off the salt and kind of eat around it. Yeah, it was a whatever memorable experience. Maybe because I was, you know how they have like TV screens in those places where you're kind of watching Bengali TV? Yeah. Maybe I was distracted by looking at the, the video screen so there are two things that i want to kind of draw out and one is andrew in yeah. terms of this idea of not looking back you know when one is on a path of transformation that mm. you don't want to look at your old incarnation as you you know open mm. to this new level what are your thoughts about that in relation to recar Ah. Uh, and this idea of being able to have a good story, um, you know, that that's part of, you know, a good story about your past in relation to Nicole's thesis. You know, she was turned into salt because she looked back and you don't look back, you know. But in therapy, you do look back. That's sort of what therapy yeah. is. That's how you go forward is by looking back. I know. I find I, 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 I find it compelling. It, it, it's interesting that it has a positive connotation in the New Testament, right? The salt is hmm. this um, spiritual source of spiritual strength, perseverance. But when it comes to the um, representation in Genesis, it's uh, like a punishment. Hmm. It's associated with the punishment. You know, there's something I want to say. I just wanted to answer Andrew's question based on my extensive Wikipedia research about. Um, why did Lot's wife get turned into salt? Why particularly yeah. salt? Why salt? Right, exactly. Yeah. Another Jewish legend says that because Lot's wife sinned with salt, she was punished with salt. Sin. On the night the two angels visited Lot, he requested that his wife prepare a feast for them. Not having any salt, Lot's wife asked her neighbors for salt which alerted them to the presence of their guests, resulting in the mob action that endangered Lot's family. I, I don't know where this is from. I get to have a suspicion this is from, you know, some, the, some, the Mishnah or the Talmud somewhere. I don't think that story is in uh, Genesis. Yeah, I don't think it's in Genesis either. It must be a Talmudic source. Yeah. So anyway, that's an interesting idea that, that he's punished. Uh, he goes to the neighbors. Do you have any extra salt? And they're like, oh, why do you need some salt? Oh, well, we have some angels in there. And then, uh, you know, a law causes a riot and uh, they want to. That's my memory is that the people in the street want to have sex, want to drag out the angels and have sex with them. They want to know them, right? Yeah. Something like that. To know in, in the Bible means one thing. <laughs> <laughs> So she was punished for tipping her mitt regarding yeah, being the a little, presence uh, of these on their uh, angels on their mission. Yeah, I guess you know right. when you have angels, you 
shouldn't tell everyone about them. If you have an angel in your house, that's one of the, what's the word, the morals of the story. Uh-huh. Well, it could also relate to her feeling self-aggrandized by having the angels come to visit. Like boasting about them. Oh, yeah, we, you know, we have a couple of angels at our house. Right. And then I was reading this weird, uh, uh, maybe it's a Christian website called Got, gotquestions.org. It says here, the Bible isn't clear whether Lot's wife was covered in the salt that rained down with the brimstone, or if her remains were dusted with a coating of salt later. So uh, it could be that uh, there seem to be suggesting that like salt was falling out of the sky, fire, brimstone, and salt, and that she just got covered, naturally covered with salt. That sounds like, what does Nichols say about religion? Oh, yeah, right. That it has no sense of humor, something like that. That it has no salt, I think. Well, I guess sectarian... It lacks the saltiness of wit. Isn't that what he said? Something like that. Right. Sectarian religion tends to, you know, take things literally, perhaps. Also, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about is about Lot's wife is the phrase pillar of salt. I don't know. It's, I realized I've always sort of assumed that that she turned into like a pillar, like a pillar of a Greek temple, not that she turned into a person made out of salt, that she no longer had a human form. But I don't know. Is that what you guys did? You guys picture her? Like turned into a statue, like a Greek statue or or a pillar. I imagine like a, a, a rugged, a rugged, roughly hewn pillar. Not a person. Didn't look like a person anymore. No. Hmm. But she would have lost the anthro form. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. I take it as a metaphor. You know, that's just me. But if I were to imagine her as a pillar of salt. I would see her like physical form transfigured into salt. And then just her eyes, like her eyes, not with salt, like the salt didn't get in her eyes. And she's just staring out forever. Yeah, like a Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you should make horror movies then. (laughs) Sparrow, I think that you wanted to talk about it practically in terms of its chemical composition. Yeah, that's right. I've got the absolute yeah. lowdown uh-huh. on the makeup of salt in general and in particular. Uh-huh. You ready for that? It's not going to freak us out, is it? It might. I'm. I'm. I got to admit, it's a little. It's a little weird, and it's a little. <laughs> but uh-huh. uh, you know, Just when you're like confronting us. salt, <laughs> you have to be brave. That's one of my many mottos in life. Okay, so this is directly from the wisdom of Wikipedia. In chemistry, a salt is a chemical compound consisting of an ionic assembly of cations and anions. Now, I think those are the correct pronunciations. Cations spelled like cat plus ions. Anions spelled like an plus ions. And looking a lot like the word onions. Salts are composed of related numbers of cations and anions so that the product is electrically neutral. These component ions can be inorganic, such as chloride, or organic, such as acetate. And this leads me to my uh, quotation from great literature, which in this case is taken from the brilliant English 
thinker, William Henry Fox Talbot. This is from a book called Classic Essays on Photography. And this is the introduction. On a trip to Lake Como in the fall of 1833, William Henry Fox Talbot, English mathematician, scientist, and linguist, tried his hand at sketching with a camera lucida. However, Talbot soon observed that to draw well from images cast by the tool required previous mastery of the rules of drawing. He mused over the possibility of fixing the images permanently without the use of pencil or brush. So a camera lucida, which most of us are not familiar with in the modern world, is as, well, I know what a, a camera obscura is. I'm not exactly sure what a camera lucida is. Well, yeah, this lucida. lucida is a tool that you have something that you want to memorialize, and it's a framing device, and I think it works through some form of refraction so that it casts a shadow on a plane, which then you sketch out. Right. It's... It's basically what we think of as a camera. Well, I guess nowadays you just think your phone is your camera. But what I think of, what old people think of as a camera, without the lens and the film, it's a, a little pinhole, right. and the the image comes through the pinhole, and I think is projected, as I recall from like you know seventh grade science, is projected upside down on the back wall of this little dark box. I think camera mm-hmm. means room, right? In, um, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Uh, Latin. So um, the idea was sometime or in the early 19th century, you know, people started thinking, okay, here's a camera lucida. It projects this image. Wouldn't it be nice if we could keep the image? We didn't have to sketch it in. We could actually hold it forever with some chemical um, magic. So Talbot starts experimenting with that. Or agent, <clears throat> yeah. But the, but the thing you're narrating is the actual moment of its, cons- uh, on Lake Como, did he actually develop the first photographic, I guess they'd be plates? Well, you know, it's very difficult to know who was first. D- Daguerre, the inventor of the daguerreotype, kind of beat him to the punch, and is kind of considered the uh, inventor of photography. But people were doing experiments with this, you know, for like 20 years before that. So I guess Talbot Talbot never quite made it all the way to the complete discovery, as I understand it, but he's pretty key. Well, he's the English, you know, this is how life was in the 19th century. There's the English guy and the French guy, and they're fighting it out to be to see who's best. And I think the French guy often won. I think the French, that's one of my theories in life. The French invented everything, then got bored with it and, and, uh, and quit it and started inventing something else. You know, the French are more interested in being geniuses uh-huh. than in actually, uh, you know, making machines. Uh-huh. So anyway, so I just, well, the, the French maybe in that sense are sort of scientifically the avant-garde. The, yeah. They make the initial like penetration, and then somebody else needs to come after them and map it out, and you know, yeah, you know, work it out into it, objects it, of use. Yeah, like make it you know actually work in the real world. Like the French are interested in that moment where the thing leaps from the idea to reality. 
not in like uh, you know building yeah. a factory to make it. Sparrow, one thing I, I one thing that occurs to me is like super duper interesting. But what does this have to do with salt? That's a very good question. That's what I'm about to read to you. These are uh, some uh, pieces of his uh, of Talbot's notebooks, his descriptions of his experiments. So now he's thinking, how am I going to get that light? The light comes to the back wall of the camera lucida. How am I going to make it create an image? So he starts experimenting. So at some point he's using chloride. It doesn't work that well. So I'm moving to the leaping to the next point. Instead of taking the chloride already formed and spreading it upon the paper, I then proceeded in the following way. The paper was first washed with a strong solution of salt. And when this was dry, it was washed again with nitrate of silver. Of course, chloride of silver was thus formed in the paper. But the result of this experiment was almost the same as before, the chloride not being apparently rendered more sensitive by being formed in this way. Similar experiments were repeated at various times in hopes of a better result, frequently changing the proportions employed and sometimes using the nitrate of silver before the, before the salt, etc., etc. In the course of these experiments, which were often rapidly performed, it sometimes happened that the brush did not pass over the whole of the paper. And of course, this produced irregularity in the results. On some occasions, certain portions of the paper were observed to blacken in the sunshine much more rapidly than the rest. These more sensitive portions were generally situated near the edges or confines of the part that had been washed over with the brush. After much consideration, as to the cause of this appearance, I conjectured bordering portions might have absorbed a lesser quantity of salt, and that for some reason or other, this had made them more sensitive to the light. This idea was easily put to the test of experiment. Well, anyway, I'll stop there. But So it just, I don't know. I, I found this portion, I got kind of obsessed with these writings of Talbot. I found the stuff that Daguerre wrote very egotistical and uninteresting. But something about Talbot laboring and laboring with these slight variations to make something that would capture the light. I mean, what an idea, right? That like light is going to come uh -huh. through a little pinhole and you're going to keep that image forever. It seems impossible. And yet, you know, we all take it for granted that it's, that it's, a, it's an everyday occurrence now. And this is the moment that he's working on that. And it just happens to all... Uh, hinge on salt. <laughs> this, this was before the daguerreotype or after? This, this is before. After. I think oh, this before is before the daguerreotype. This is 1834, 1834, and I think the daguerreotype, if I remember correctly, is like you know, it's difficult to say at what point. I think 39 is the big, um, you know, 30, 1839 is this report by Dominique Francois Arago asking the commission of the Chamber of Deputies to give Daguerre an annual life pension of 6,000 francs. So that's 39. What, what's, for me, Sparrow, is super interesting, oh. or, you know, of real note, is the integral that role that Salt played in making photography Hello? possible. I hear you, but I, something went wrong with me, I think. Well, to sleep. Uh, and of uh, preservation, 
you know, which is mm. one of the functions of salt <laughs> is to preserve. And uh -huh. so, you know, people see things and want to capture them, want to change their disposition relative to time. Mm. And that salt, that's one of its key functions relative to human and, you know, relative to life, right? We all need salt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I make a, a, a larger comment at this point about salt that is um, non-scientific in nature? But I'm struck, maybe it's a low-hanging fruit, but that hasn't stopped me in the past. <laughs> I'm struck by the fact that salt is both a preserver and, mm. and a destroyer. Mm. Yeah, and, that's a good point. In equal measure, it's one of these um, substances and by extension symbols that has um, multiple loci of, of meaning. Um, you hear the phrase, rub salt on the wound. Salt destroys slugs, of course, the way to kill slugs. I remember when um, I got a one of my three tattoos at the age of 16, I, I, I had a nickname tattooed onto my chest, mm -hmm. which I regret. I mean, the nickname only lasted about three months, if that, socially, but um, it is emblemized permanently, as long as I live, on my um, left pectoral muscle. <laughs> but I saw a dermatologist in Montreal. I didn't have any money. Maybe I was in college at this point. I wanted to get, I thought I would get rid of it. He said, well, I could do something with a laser, but that's rather expensive. What I recommend that you do is buy some Jewish kosher salt <laughs> and rub it away once a day for two weeks, and 90% of it will disappear. You're not going to tell us what this nickname is? You're that embarrassed by it? I, it's <laughs> yeah, come clean. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, um, no, I'm not. I'm not telling you to tell it. I'm just want to clarify that that you're not. You don't want to tell the nickname. No, I just want to make that clear. I will refrain from sharing the name. Not that um, anything significant will happen if I share it. I've just. It's one of my rules not to share it. I know what you mean. I I don't like to say my real name. Like I, you know, sometimes I have to. Obviously, if I go to some hospital or official place. And then I don't mind so much, but I don't like it when I have to. Some friend of mine says, "What's your real name?" I don't okay. like to say it. You mentioned your real name in the uh, very moving essay that you wrote on your mother's passing. Yeah, I didn't mention it actually, but um, well, you know, my mother, of course, used it with me always, and um, I, I, I quoted her as having used it, and then the editor put in the fact that my <laughs> had to put in what my real name is, which is logical, you know. But I didn't actually write it. Oh, were you were you upset with the ed editorial decision? I couldn't blame them. I mean, you know, their job is to make it readable and understandable, and um, it, it seemed foolish not to put it in. And also, it was kind of like, this is the 40th year that I've been writing for the Sun magazine. I mean, in a sense, I've devoted my life to writing for them. And it's kind of like my mother dies. It's a crisis for me as I write in this essay. And in the course of that, I, I reveal my, my true name, you know, as a, almost a, a gesture of desperation, kind of, you know. Sure. So it sort of adds to the feeling of the essay, at least in my mind. I, I would tend to agree. It's the preserver and destroyer. Isn't that interesting? 
Yeah, I have such low confidence in the technical horizon that we're speaking across, by the way. But, um, you know, in terms of this both practical as well as esoteric understanding of the nature of salt as a pr something that preserves and destroys, or, you know, depending on quantity and, you know, to what it's applied, it's a matter of controlling time, mm. if you get my drift, in that, you know, you can end time you know, the end of uh, life, you know, it's a sort of like the end of time, right? Or you can preserve time, you can hold time, you can take mm. a piece of meat and put salt in it and preserve it. Like you were saying, Sparrow, you know, it's relative importance to the emergence of the city, you know, mm. that you were, and this idea of controlling time, I guess, you know, in its esoteric application, is that you need salt in order to preserve. And what is it that you you are preserving is, um, you know, your, what do we call it, soul? Oh, yeah. I think probably when they say, you know, immortality, eternal life, we're really talking about consciousness, I think, right? Like, okay. that's what we would hold on to is consciousness, is self-awareness. Um, Not the Jehovah's Witnesses, they say. Is that what say, you mean by eternal life? I think the Jehovah's Witnesses, with whom I studied for two and a half years, they say that your actual body is uh, re resurrected, I always forget that word, and that you live in your body. I think it's some I asked him once, like, well, what age, you know, like what age body, like sort of your optimal age. You know, I remember when I was 34, I thought like, this is the best. What's that? This is the best year of my life. That's the third, that's the body you get for all of eternity. Unless you go to heaven. I think if you but go that's to heaven, kind you of bonkers. Sparrow. What? Sparrow. Yeah. As a rationalist, Sparrow. Wouldn't yeah. you agree that that's bonkers? <laughs> bonkers? I, uh, I mean, um, frankly, I mean, it's, uh, it I requires like know. all these leaps of improbability to wind up with, oh, yeah, you know. And also, what happens if you got a bum body? Uh, that's a good question. I think maybe that gets fixed. Maybe Jesus will fix it. Jesus is going to run the world. It's kind of like you know, a photograph and then going back over the photograph and sort of <laughs> uh, touching it up or something. Yeah, photoshopping it. I know that uh, salt was used in the process yeah. of uh, mummification. Oh, yeah, interesting, yeah. In ancient Egypt, it, the specific salt, um, and I did a little research on this, huh. uh, it's called natron. Natron. It's a disinfectant and desiccating salt. Mm. And it was the main ingredient used in the process of mummification. Mm. Uh, it's a compound of sodium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate. So that's salt and baking soda that I guess essentially dries out the corpse. And this was the mm. uh, central ingredient in uh, mummification within uh, ancient Egyptian culture. And pickles, right? I think salt is used in, I should ask my wife, but she's in another room. The, uh, I think salt is used in pickling. That, it is kind of like the mummification of a cucumber or whatever you're pickling. Suppose it is, right? Except it, it isn't dried out. Yeah. It's wet mummification. That's a hmm. great 
uh, finding, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So that the salt, in terms of you know preserving yourself, you know, um, you know, like these early um, Jehovah's Witnesses called the Egyptians believe that, you know, the body that you have, you know, you're going to keep. Yeah, I think so. I think that, in fact, it could be that Christianity or Judaism and then Christianity got this concept of resurrection and eternal life. But I think from the Egyptians, but I think that, I think they were so literal that they thought, like, the pharaoh gets mummified. And I think higher aristocrats, because I listened recently to these, like, 48 lectures on um, uh, Egypt. So I'm... A, something of a temporary expert on Egypt, but a lot of it is fleeting from my mind. The higher level officials and the king, the pharaoh, got mummified, and they therefore would live forever. But normal people, their bodies would decay, and they would not live forever. I think that it was kind of a class system of eternity. Wow. What are, in Some Rough. animals were... Um... That's right. Were mummified as well, like the uh, pharaoh's cats. Yeah, I think not. Just, I think thousands and maybe millions of cats and dogs were mummified. There's one in the Great Museum in Albany, and one of my maybe my favorite museum in the world, the Albany Institute of History and Art. They have a tiny mummified cat, not tiny, but you know, mummified cat, and then they had it X-rayed ten years ago and discovered it's actually a dog. It's a kind of fraudulent, but it's dressed up as a cat. I think it's somehow it's clear that it's intended to, it's like a fake cat that was made by uh, some mummifier of ancient Egypt. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's great to find out that salt has played such a significant role in the practical alchemy of the afterlife. <laughs> And all sorts, of, and the alchemy of photography, all sorts of alchemies, I have a suspicion, are connected. I mean, I think chemically, yeah. salt you know, is really one a alchemy, key factor. One alchemy is these um, isolation tanks and the salt that's put into yes. isolation tanks. Yeah. Right. Which is actually, I believe that that's Epsom salt. Oh, yeah? I was going to talk about Epsom salt because yeah. I've been using Epsom salt. I've been using the alchemy of Epsom salts on myself magnesium, lately. Yeah, magnesium sulfate. Yeah, it's and pretty named cheap. named after a town in, uh, in England in the county of Surrey called Epsom. And is there naturally occurring Epsom salt there? I think that most natural springs are Epsom salt phenomena. It's hard to know with Epsom salts. Whether you are, and I don't know, I guess it's always plural, right? Epsom salts or Epsom salt. But I started using it because I hurt my hip, or suddenly my hip started to hurt. I didn't even do anything um, a few months ago, and then I became kind of addicted to Epsom salts, and I really felt that they helped. This this friend of mine who's a spiritual healer, he did long-distance Reiki on me, and that really helped. And then the Epsom salts helped the rest. Another, the rest of the, the other 20% of the healing process. Because they feel, they feel like they're helping, but you don't know if they're here. It's gone. Missed that information. Fragmentary. That we can preserve. 
<laughs> yeah, that's we right. We can preserve. I know. I know. I'm feeling the uh, whoa. Maybe that's why our obsession with preservation in this conversation is based on our anxiety about uh, the preservation of the conversation itself. One thing I, I thought I would bring up is, again, Fitzgerald's crack up, which is from where we came to the salt. Yeah. And I kind of was wondering, relative to what we've been discussing, if there were any kind of insights in terms of his use of the St. Matthew's quotation regarding salt. Oh, the yeah. man loses his savor. Wherefore will he regain his salt? Is that is that a good paraphrase? If the salt Maybe not so should, good. No, it says something like You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its savor, then what worth does it have? What value does no, it no, have? No, wherefore will a man regain his his salt, regain his savor? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the context, in the context of Fitzgerald, it appears right after he is talking to the woman, the, rep, the uh, Spinoza representative. Oh, yeah. And he's spoken of his vitality, that he's lost his vitality. And that that's the context in which the salt parable is quoted. I mean, in the sense that, like, life can lose its savor. Like, you can lose your taste for living. Suddenly, everything tastes flat. I was going to tell this story, this crazy thing happened yeah. to me. That I was just saying, I, I think that that is a very real aspect of the human possibility. Mm -hmm. That life loses its savor, and you know that that's oh, in this last uh, conversation. But that's that's central to the crisis of Jack Kerouac's character in Big Sur. That he you know, he's lost his savor, right. he's lost his mojo. Some essence of spirit that guided him thus far is is gone. So where does he go? He goes to a body of salt water. He goes <laughs> to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And he is unable to find that salt again. Um, and it's very tragic. It's, it's mm. barren. Yeah, to get back his savor, which also is, a, is an interesting word in terms of the Indian raga. Hmm. I believe savor is the translation of the word rasa. Hmm. What is what's rasa? I believe another way of saying that is the quintessence. Mm. I think it also has to do with the divine. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. If when life loses its savor, in a way, God has lost God's savor. You've kind of lost touch. What they refer in my meditation group to is these dryness, these dry periods. Which uh, is kind of the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or going back to our friend Maurice Nichol, uh, that life has lost its meaning. His understanding of what is God is transversible with meaning. Yeah. Oh, right. It's equal to meaning. Yeah. And also, a lot of this has to do with middle age, really. That this point where life loses its well, I think savor. That for 
you know, yeah, it's typically like the another mo- level that you come to in middle in middle age, perhaps that if you accept its terms, if mm. you're willing to move on from a previous incarnation, um, then middle age becomes a kind of opening and a possibility. But if you're holding on to a lot of perhaps outmoded concepts or patterns, then those impede that possibility. Yeah, if you're still trying to act like you're 26 when you're 46, you're going to probably literally be in a lot of pain from like dancing till three in the morning. Then you have to wake up the next morning, you know, and go to work when you're young. Yeah, like three years later, you'll be 49. That's all you could really have counted on. What do you mean? What? That's, that's 49, what? Sparrow. 39? No, 49. 49. Yeah, Sparrow, yeah. you have a thesis, which you felt Fitzgerald... Oh, no, 48. Are you? Yeah, the 40, 49, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that's when you collapse, when, right. you, uh, when you abuse yourself. I think there's the delay is hard because um it inadvertently leads to talking over one another. The uh, the first twelve lines from the Inferno, the first canto of the Inferno, oh. I think speaks to this moment midway upon the journey of our life. I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Ah me, how hard a thing it is to say. What was this forest savage, rough and stern, which in the very thought renews the fear? So bitter is it, death is little more. But of the good to treat, which there I found, speak will I, of the other things I saw there. I cannot well repeat how there I entered, so full was I of slumber at the moment in which I had abandoned the true way. What? Whose translation? That's um, a nice... Nice connection. Thanks, man. It was beautiful. Um, that's um, that's actually um, hey, a nineteenth-century American poet's translation. That's the translation of Longfellow. Huh, Longfellow. I just read some dumb article in uh, the New Yorker about him and about him translating. That included him translating. I think he did the whole Divine Comedy. Yeah, he was a prolific translator and. Translated from Old Norse as well, right? Translated um, epic poems from the Scandinavian cultures. That Finnish poem, what's the epic, the great epic of Finnish I know. culture? I, the, the Kalevala or something. Kalevala, something like that. That influenced Hiawatha, right? Didn't he steal the rhythms of it to yes. write Hiawatha? Right. He wanted to be the first to compose this great American epic. Yes. And he used um, European meters and, and, um, and rhythms to do so within the various epic traditions. Yeah, he was a really erudite guy. Yeah, you know, he did salt. salt. He did salt those poems. He salted them? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, mean? It's, it's true that uh, writing, writing books, mm-hmm. writing, writing books, you know, is a is a salty proposition. You're trying to preserve something. Right. And yeah. for all I know, in the making of paper, salt is crucial. We'll have to, like, um, investigate that for our third salt uh, talk. And then my wife pointed out the salt talks. 
Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, a big event of 1972. I don't even know what year. I forgot to look it up. That's another future topic for our salt studies. And I wanted to tell the story of visiting yeah. the Great Salt Caves outside of Cluj. That's right. You mentioned it. Yeah. Right. I went for healing several summers ago. A while ago now, maybe it was uh, seven years. Mm. You descend into these caves. This You take this endless and rather rickety. Where is it? Era. Uh, it's in Transylvania. It's about a, an hour and a half outside of the, the city of Cluj, which is one of the major cities of Transylvania. There are two. There's that's Cluj. in Romania, right? That's in Romania. There's Cluj and there's Tigumuris. And um, Cluj is the city outside of which the great salt mines are. But you go on this communist era industrial elevator down, mm. like you're going down into the core of the earth. And then mm. um, when you get to the salt mines, they're very cold. They smell like salt, and they're gigantic. It's like a cathedral down there. Uh -huh. um, and there are all these different rooms and um, salt baths. You could just sit near the salt walls. It's it's um, it's really otherworldly. It's hard, hard to find words. Yeah, I was thinking, Andrew, in terms of cave. And, you know, Dante begins with a cave. Um, and, but I was also thinking about, again, Fitzgerald, I apologize. But in terms of the structure, because I think we were thinking about the essay, it's three-part structure. Yeah. Mm. And I wanted to say that it also fits into past, present, and future, mm. the Fitzgerald essay. Mm. That in the first part, he's talking about a past event, and then in the second section he talks about the present you know how things are right now and then in the third he launches into you know how he's going to be in the future mm. the mask mm. which yeah the mask which also is a persona is a mask as we've discussed you know persona literally means to sound through a mask mm. Um, is something you sound through. It's a theatrical carryover right. persona. I wonder if you could say that Divine Comedy is divided into past, present, and future. I was just wondering that myself. Yeah. You know, your past is all the torments of your childhood. Your present is your struggle to purify yourself in the purgatory of real life. And your future is the beautiful, blessed salvation that will come to you, Lord willing. Hallelujah. What Hall about your healing? You you went down there. So, in other words, this like industrial weirdo communist salt mine is now a new agey spa. Is that it, Andrew? You know, it it is and it isn't. People, I think, close to a million people a year travel there to go wow. into salt mines. Um, wow. But you don't encounter the Omega type down there. <laughs> You're talking about the Omega Institute, New yeah, AD. Omega. Right, exactly, near Rhinebeck, New whatever York. Whatever you call it, full of jargon, glassy-eyed weirdo. And a lot of uh, a lot of money, too. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah, a lot of money. Um, the salt mines are a place for everyone in the society in Romania, from the poorest of the poor to the wealthiest of the wealthy. And, um, yeah, it's pretty egalitarian. Is it Catholic? Is there some... Saint of the salt mine. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Down there, there, there was no 
there's no suggestion of any sort of religious association. Pretty medical, biomedical in its focus. There's a belief that salt has therapeutic properties. And uh, if you go down into a salt mine and just be there for a while, you don't even have to bathe in salt. You just have to be in the salt mine for a few hours. You will return rejuvenated and even um, healthier. What's your uh, summation? What was your experience? I liked it. Uh, I appreciated it not so much because of the salt, but it was a very hot day. And to go into the cool, dark, I appreciated that. We took a boat around. You could you could rent a boat for a buck, and then wow. just paddle around the cave. Mm. Um, you know, nice. And it, none of it seems to be very um, regulated, so I think people get lost down there. <laughs> um, I was a bit freaked out that we were going to end up in <laughs> God knows where in some dark cabin. Yeah, still down there ten years <laughs> later. Preserved, sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it lit by like real uh, Transylvanian style torches like they use when they were running to Frankenstein's castle? Right? No, no, there, there are there's electricity down there, and there's an amusement park. There's a Ferris. Oh, no. It's so big that they put a Ferris wheel in, and the <laughs> Ferris wheel must be from I don't know 1943. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's full of duct tape. And- I, there's something I wanted to say now, just based on my extensive research, looking up the phrase, pour salt on his wounds, her wounds, that there is something called a saline solution. So part of this kind of ambiguity of salt uh, applies to the question of pouring salt on wounds, that I guess if you pour salt directly onto a wound, it's going to hurt. And maybe not help, but there's something called saline solution that they actually give you in hospitals yeah. that is very good for healing. And so I don't, I don't know that I have experienced it. Maybe. I mean, one time I do want to tell one story. That one time I was hitchhiking. No, I was traveling with these friends of mine across the country from maybe Pueblo, Colorado to California, and we stopped. We had sleeping bags, and we stopped and uh, slept for the night. We got They got tired on drive. They got tired driving. We stopped, pulled the car over to the side of the road, and um, and then went to sleep. And then I woke up in the morning, and everything was covered with snow, but it was summer. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, we are in the great salt flats of Utah. And uh, we just went to sleep. One of giant field of salt, but did it heal me? I, perhaps. How, how, how big is the field of salt? I mean, as I can see it in my mind, and it was like you know stretched infinitely as far as you could see. It's the Great Salt Flats. It's big. I guess it's the deposits of an ancient sea. The Great Salt Flats are where you do land speed records. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Why? Because the salt is good for traction. I don't know. Because nobody's around. It's super duper flat, and mm. it's probably got a high viscosity, maybe, or I don't know, maybe mm. not. So, I could read you this thing from Rajneesh. I've been reading Rajneesh lately. I kind of like All Rajneesh. All right, Rajneesh, your Osho. You know, he, I guess he was kind of, he's been um, vilified variously for committing... Netflix. 
indiscretions within his community. I don't know. What more is there to say? Is it? Can we even mention Rashnish? <laughs> well, wild, wild Country was very, very popular. Damn, damned him. Yeah. Somebody, somebody watched it and said that uh, the woman that ran the ashram was the kind of villain and that Rajneesh was just this kind of spaced out guy that didn't seem to know what was going on. I thought that's what they said. I don't know. I think there are two people. There's Rajneesh and then there's Osho. So I think he's sort of like been split apart and they're really foregrounding Osho. Well, Osho was just yeah, another incarnation. Like, he just changed his sort name, of a though, bad Osho. rap. Like that's where all the like... And then Osha is kind of, oh, Osho. I thought of Osho because he wrote a book on the book of uh, St. Matthew, on the book of Matthew. And um, I know that he had some salty things to say in that book. But, you know, it's been a long time and I couldn't find the book. But I thought I would (laughs) look him up. And it turns out Rashnish wrote a, uh, a book called the rebel, colon, the very salt of the earth. <laughs> like, not the salt of the earth, the very salt. Mm. So he's got, you know, he's got something to say about salt, and it's taken a position in it. And so here is from a series of commentaries that he's giving on the nature of the desire. Desire only that which is within you. And this is from the voice of silence. And this is what he writes. Rama Krishna used to say that if a figure made out of salt tries to fathom the depth of the ocean, it will fail. It will begin the search, but it will never reach to the destination because it is, after all, made of salt. And as it falls into the ocean's depths, it is dissolving, becoming absorbed. By the time it has reached a certain depth, it will be gone. Nothing will remain. Nothing can return and say how deep the ocean is. Yet only salt can come to know the depths of the ocean. If you throw in a stone, it will reach to the depth, but it will remain untouched by the soul of the ocean. How can something which cannot dissolve feel the ocean's soul? How can something which cannot disappear, which cannot be absorbed, measure the real depth of the ocean? And then he goes on into the ocean relative to the nature of the ocean. Yeah, I've heard that metaphor, certainly, because since I'm around yogis, this idea of uh, the salt divide dissolving into the ocean is like the, the soul, the individual soul, the individual Atman. Uh, dissolving into the Supreme Consciousness, the uh, Parma Purusha, the uh, massive consciousness of the world. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny that we haven't thought about that in our uh, conversation, the, the dissolvingness of salt. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.